Why is it that today, in American politics, you can look at the same data and arrive at different conclusions? Now, we don't want to go there because I don't want people to stone me. But, but there, there needs to be a recognition that there is another entity that is playing a role when it comes to how we interpret something. And it's the same with Scripture. Now, for the first part of this seminar, we want to talk about this thing that we have here that it's in the background, it's called interpretation. It's not interpretation. It's called a presupposition. Pre, before, supposition, idea. It's the idea that you bring to the table before you engage a topic. Now, presuppositions are powerful. Now, typically, when we come to data, scientists approach it from an empiricist standpoint, assuming that we are like film and we just absorb the information. Have you ever heard someone say, let's just be objective? Uh So you just follow a certain principle of interpretation and you will arrive at objective truth. And IQ is is slated to be something that is uh, sought after. In other words, the higher the IQ, the more data you can arrive at. Now, this this is a picture of Michael Kearney. He was a prodigy. Michael Kearney spoke his first words at four months. At the age of six months, he said to his pediatrician, I have a left ear infection. Now look, he knows what left and right are. He knows what an infection is. And he's made a diagnosis at six months. This is true. This is true. Six months. He learned to read at the age of 10 months. When Michael was four, he was given a multiple choice diagnostic test for Johns Hopkins precocious math program. Without having studied specifically for the exam, Michael achieved a perfect score. He graduated college at the age of 10, received a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of South Alabama in 1994. In 1994, Kearney and his parents were on The Tonight Show. He received his master's degree in biochemistry at the age of 14. His 118-page thesis was entitled Kinetic Isotope Effects of, I can't even pronounce that. So there you have it. Brilliant genius. Now that's IQ. Now, from, from the modernistic standpoint, IQ determines the, the rate of data. So the smarter you are, the more interpretive power, the engine, it's kind of like the processor that you have. And this is the paradigm that people naturally assume when it comes to biblical interpretation. The smarter you are, or interpretation for that matter of any scientific data, IQ. IQ, 140 and above, genius, you can know the data. But when it comes to scripture, it doesn't work the same way, i.e., the Pharisees, very smart, brilliant. They, they had memorized large portions of Scripture. In order to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be a genius. So they come face to face with Jesus, and they kill him, which shows you there's something more than IQ. In other words, when it comes to the processing of spiritual information, not only is the data projecting onto you, but you are projecting onto the data. Presuppositions. Presuppositions are powerful. And we need to acknowledge the presence of presuppositions when it comes to Scripture. What are presuppositions? Presuppositions are deep, unstated beliefs, fundamental assumptions upon which all other concepts and ideas are interpreted. So a lot of us, we don't even recognize that we do have presuppositions. Some people say, I don't have any. <laughs> um, I'm not biased. Everybody else is. Well, the way that knowledge works, it takes knowledge to acquire knowledge. All knowledge is is 
interpreted in the context of pre-knowledge. Which brings us to this slide here. Now, <clears throat> I just messed you up. Okay, never mind. All right. So, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to plant a presupposition in your head. Now, don't worry. This is not neuro-linguistic programming or anything like that. It's just the way the knowledge works. So, I'm going to plant a presupposition in your head. And uh, I think all of you saw the slide, so I just messed you up. But anyways, okay, so how many of you were born from June, never mind, from January to June? Raise your hand. About half of you. Okay, there you go. All right. So those that were born between January and June, please close your eyes. January to June, close your eyes. Everyone else, keep your eyes open, and I'll show you the next slide. Okay, there's the next slide. Everyone that has their eyes open, see that slide? Okay, get it in your head. I'm planning a presupposition in there. Okay. Now everyone can open their eyes. Those that were born between July and December, now close your eyes. Okay? July and December, now close your eyes. The rest of you keep your eyes open. I'm going to show you this picture. Okay? Get that in your head. Understand what it is. Okay, got it? All right. Now, everyone open your eyes. I'm going to show you a photo. Now, I planted a presupposition in your head. Now, take a look at this photo. Okay? Now, does anyone here see a young woman? Okay, young woman. You see a young woman for sure? Yeah. Okay, it's a young yeah. woman. She's looking away off to the right. She has a little eyes okay. just below her okay. There head. Okay, okay, there. So you see a young woman. Are you sure you see a young woman? Positive, right? Okay. Does anyone here see an old woman? Oh, okay, old woman. Oh, right here. Okay, so right next to you, you see an old woman, right? All right. I actually see two women in that picture. Never mind. Never mind. All right, all right. <laughs> Who sees only an old woman? You see only an old woman, right? You see an only... Okay, you see an old woman. Yes, old woman uh, looking down. Probably about uh, 80. 80. Okay, 80-year-old 80 woman. Now, you see a young woman. How old is the young woman? She's 20s. 20s, 20s. Okay. So one person sees an 80-year-old woman. The other one sees a young woman in her 20s. Some of you see both, all right? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> he needs a pair of glasses. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> now, now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We could have a powerful debate. Now, how, how is it? Now, are we all looking at the same photo? We're all looking at the same data. The data is the same. The difference is I planted a picture in your head that actually colors how you view this drawing. That's the reality. This is the power of presuppositions. This is the power of presuppositions. Now, can, can, can we just do a raise of hands? How many of you see an old woman? Raise your hand. Now, look around. Look around. How, look how many people see old, an old woman. Now, how many of you see a young woman? Raise your hand. Look at that. Yeah. Okay, look. 
Now, some of you are raising your hand both. All right, so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, this is just a simple exercise to show you this is powerful. Okay? This is, this is powerful. Now, just to go back, I'll show you everyone what I showed everybody else before. So this was the first presupposition I planted in those that were born between June and July. This is the second one between July and June. July and December, sorry, it's after lunch. So, so that's the one, and then this one is basically a composite. Now, what, what happens is that that picture that was just planted in your head becomes the interpretive framework for what you see. This shows you the power of presuppositions. Now, when it comes to Scripture, there's presuppositions that you bring to the table before you come to the text. Hmm? Culture, education, experience. So not only is the text projecting onto you, you're projecting onto the text. And that's what we want to talk about here. Even before we get to methodology, now we'll talk about methodology, but if the presuppositions are idols, are you following me? These are things that are, are things cultural things that you hold on to. What was the idol that they held on to when they saw Jesus? The idol was the first century Jew believed that Jesus was going to come and throw out the Romans. And that became an idol that they weren't willing to, it was non-negotiable. So rather than giving this up, they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus. It's called the idolatry of ideas. And the sooner that we recognize this when it comes to the text that all of us have deep-seated ideas in our head that we hang on to. And unless we're willing to surrender that to Scripture, the Holy Spirit will never, never force His way into our hearts and minds. We need to give it up. You ever read, read a Bible passage? I have. I'm like, I don't like that. Huh? I, I just don't, I don't like that. It goes against everything I believe. And the typical tendency is to go in there and twist it to try to meet. But what we need to do is suspend the presupposition and be like, all right, I don't like this, but all right, what is it actually saying? And you go in there and let the text speak, and we're going through a process on that. Now, here, I want to go through a Bible story. And while I'm going through this Bible story, I'm kind of illustrating how we can study the Bible in an indirect way, but I'm, I'm going to go back to this whole thing of presuppositions and the power that they have. So go with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke. Okay, to the book of Luke. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Who was Luke? Uh, <laughs> Who wrote the book of Luke? <laughs> it's Luke. All right, who wrote, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Okay, now here's an interesting thing. Who was, who was Luke written to? It's, you see it right here in verse 1 through 3. Let me read it. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which had been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, to us, it seemed good to me, also having perfect understanding of all things 
from the very first to write unto you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were in, in which you were instructed. So, who was the book of Luke written to? It was written to Theophilus. Now, hold your finger there. If you go to the book of Acts, which is right after Luke, uh, John, <laughs> you go to the book of Acts, you'll see something interesting. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. This is just some background information. If you go to Acts chapter 1, and you'll see that the book of Luke and the book of Acts are, are connected in a significant way. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, oh, what does it say? Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So, they're sequels. The first one was written to Theophilus. The second one is written to Theophilus as well. And in the second one, he actually references the first one. Now, this is an important background. So, go back to the book of Luke here. Go back to Luke 1. And... I want to point out a few things before we get to our principal observation for Bible study. So if you go to Luke chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse verse 15. Verse 15. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. This is in describing John the Baptist. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is the angel Gabriel describing the nature of John the Baptist in in his, his life work. Now, you'll notice two things that are important. There was a dietary guideline that he was given. He was not to drink what? Wine or strong drink. And then right after that says that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. But where did the filling with the Holy Spirit begin? It's in utero. This is fascinating. Fascinating. Now, how does the book of Acts begin? With the filling of the Holy Spirit in the early church. So, both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, written to the same person, written by the same author, have this unique beginning to both of them. Both of them begin with being filled with the Holy Spirit, except this one is so unique. In utero, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, keep that in your minds because six months later, after the conception of of John the Baptist, Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and go forward to Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. Okay, Luke chapter 1, verse 39. The same angel that visited Zacharias in the temple now visits Mary. Let's pick it up in verse 39. Now, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted... Oh, that's, that's the wrong one. Let's, uh, let's go back to verse 26. Sorry. Verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, 
She was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall be called Jesus. He'll be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. Verse 34, Then the angel said to Mary, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? Logical, isn't it? Then the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Indeed, Mary, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived in her old age. Now, this is the sixth month in which she is called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. The angel Gabriel does a couple of things. First, the angel says Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Now, why, why would she do that? Why would he do that, the angel Gabriel? What, what do we call that? That's, that's what we call corroborating evidence because Elizabeth is a senior citizen. You know, she's on Medicare, Medicaid, whatever it is. She's, she's geriatric. All right, she's geriatric. This is grandma. This is grandma. Grandma's six months pregnant. And when you're six months, you're showing. So, so Mary is like, look, how can this be? Because I don't know a man. And the angel Gabriel says, look, grandma's pregnant, six months. So Mary's like, okay, okay. But then, but then goes on and says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Okay. Now, now, there's something that the angel Gabriel is looking for, and it, it comes out in the next passage, right here, in verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. What are the next three words? Let it be to me according to your word. <sighs> what, what do we call that? Humility, surrender, obedience, all synthesizes like consent. Huh? Let it be. In other words, the angel Gabriel comes and says, like, look, God can do anything. You're going to be pregnant with God. Now, I remember... When I went in, not I, my wife and I went in when we found out we were pregnant. It was eight weeks, and we're trying to find the heartbeat, the whole Doppler thing. And I remember at eight weeks, the first time I heard Hudson's heartbeat, it was like, they're finding, oh, it's like, shh, and it was like, and I remember I, I just, I teared up. I teared up. And, and I walked out of that doctor's office. And you know what thought hit my head? Jesus, at one point of his incarnation, was eight weeks. Can can you believe that? I mean, this is, if God can do that, he can do anything. (laughs) If he can do that, he can do anything. But, But look at the way this happens. 
the way that God's power is packaged, it's not packaged like a nuclear bomb. Now, I had the privilege of going to Hiroshima in Japan and went to the memorial. The, the way that, you know, if, if, heaven forbid, a nuclear bomb is dropped on us right now, it's packaged in a way that, that it will do what it does regardless of whether we want it or not. They don't ask you for a consent form. <laughs> right? I mean, you don't, it, it just happens. Now, the angel Gabriel didn't come to Mary and say, like, look, whether you like it or not, you're going to be pregnant with God. Goodbye. That's not how it happened. In other words, it wasn't this nuclear bomb. The way that God's power is packaged is what we call latent power. In other words, it exists in a state of unfulfilled potential, like a seed. You can put a seed on your shelf for years. Matter of fact, they have a seed that they found in Masada that's 2,000 years old. They archaeologically, you know, archaeologists, they found it and they dug it out. And then what, what do you think they wanted to do? All right? Whether well, it germinate. And a few of them germinated. And you can go to Palestine right now and there's a palm tree, a palm tree from seeds 2,000 years old. Was that power always there? Did they create that power? No. It existed in a state of unfulfilled potential. The word of God is like a seed. And so the angel Gabriel comes, not with atomic power, but with latent power. And he says, look, God can do anything. And it's right there, right there. You can be pregnant with God. Right there. And the moment that Mary said, let it be. You can see it in the narrative. Angel says, you can be pregnant with God. And she says, let it be. Can you imagine Jesus in heaven? Angel Gabriel comes. All heaven is watching. What's she going to say? Let it be. Jesus vanishes. Greatest miracle in the universe. Greatest miracle in the universe. Look, God, if God can do that, he can do anything. Word of God exists in a state of unfulfilled potential. You following me? Every promise. Latent power. When you open it, a new heart I give you, new spirit within I put within you, you said, Lord, let it be. Boom. You believe it regardless of the way that you may or may not feel. Look, if God can do that, he can do anything. I mean, that's the reality. Now, I'm preaching now, but, but let me keep going. Let me keep going. That's not even my point. So let's go to Luke chapter 1. Now, after that, we'll get to the hermeneutical point here. After that, let it be. She's, she's pregnant. And you can see in the narrative why why we can come to that assumption. Look in verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country and with haste to the city of Judah. Where is she going? She's going to Elizabeth. Why? Because the angel Gabriel has told her, Grandma's pregnant. Okay? She wants to go to somebody that will understand. 
She wants to go to someone that knows what she's going through and will believe. Do you think Joseph's going to believe right away? I mean, Joseph, I'm pregnant, and I, didn't, I wasn't with a man, but by the way, I'm pregnant with God. I mean, that sounds, that sounds pretty, I don't know what to say. So she goes, and look at this. She goes to Elizabeth, entered the house of Elizabeth, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is what's happening. She says, let it be. She goes, she runs to Jerusalem. I mean, she runs to Judea. She runs to Judea. And she goes into the house of Elizabeth. She walks in the house. This is what the Bible says. And as soon as Mary walks in the house, Elizabeth says, you're pregnant and you're pregnant with God. That's the story. That's the story. Now, here's the thing. This is all about hermeneutics. <laughs> the question is, how did she know? How did she know? Here's the data. Here's the data. How did she know? Mary walks in the door. You're pregnant, and you're pregnant with God. Now, look, that woman, do you think a lot of people passed that woman as she was going from her home to Elizabeth's home? From an external standpoint, she looked like any other peasant back in the first century. You couldn't see anything. She wasn't even showing. But the moment that she walks in that home, Elizabeth recognizes that she's standing in the presence of divinity. You're pregnant and you're pregnant with God. But not only that, who else recognizes it as well? The baby. John the Baptist, in utero, six months in development, leaps in the womb because he recognizes that he's in the presence of God. And we know this because the way she interprets it in verse 44, for indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. In other words, this is not just because she had a bunch of honey right before that. The baby's just kicking around. Oh, you know, John's really active today. No, there was an interpretation that took place. She interpreted the leaping of her baby in her womb that her son, six months in development, suddenly recognized that he was in the presence of divinity and that Mary was pregnant with God. How did she come to that interpretation? How? It wasn't methodology. <laughs> it was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. So, which brings us to the most important factor in interpretation. Like, look, you can, we'll go into method and we'll break down Scripture. But if we are not in tune with the Holy Spirit, we're just going to see nothing. And the person that's in tune with the Holy Spirit will see everything. Here's the data. Mary, a peasant, pregnant. It just happened. Elizabeth sees it right away.
Here's another question. Now, the Holy Spirit told Elizabeth, but why is it that she didn't react like her husband? You got to pray for the men, by the way, right? Okay, so, so her, husband, her husband is told by an angel. Now, I'm imagining Gabriel showed up like, I don't know how tall he was. I mean, this is the angel Gabriel. He's like, look, your wife's going to be pregnant, and he doesn't believe. But why is it that Elizabeth, who's not visited by an angel, is, is given the impression that Mary is pregnant with God and she believes right away. Why is her belief so instantaneous? Why is she be able to be like, oh, yeah, no problem. I believe that. What's the difference? There it is. Not only the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit's telling John the Baptist, too. He's speaking to the angel. But look at the state of Elizabeth. What is Elizabeth's state right now? I mean, I don't understand what that's like because I've never been pregnant. But, but for those of you that have been, I mean, she's, she's six months pregnant. All right? She's six months pregnant. And every discomfort, every movement, every adjustment is a reminder of a miracle that she's experiencing herself. Grandma, 90-year-old, geriatric, whatever it is. Is going around. I mean, she's the talk of the town. She's waddling around and so forth. And people are like, whoa, this is the greatest miracle. And she's like, I know. I can't believe it. This is crazy. And then when the, when the Holy Spirit tells her, oh, by the way, Mary's pregnant with God, she's like, oh, yeah. You're pregnant with God, aren't you? In other words, in order to see the miracle, you got to experience the miracle. Someone say amen. Come on now. If you don't experience it, you can't see it. you got to be born of the Spirit in order to see the things of the Spirit. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. This is not an ordinary book. Come on now. This was born of the Holy Spirit. Unless we're born of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to see it either. And that's why Elizabeth could see it. Because she was experiencing the miracle herself. A miracle baby. And then she sees Mary and she says, no problem. I can believe that. Just like that. So the prerequisite to studying scripture is not IQ. It's I will. He that wills to do his will shall know concerning the doctrine. John 7, 17. You got to be converted. You see, my issue with Scripture is not the things that I don't understand. It's the things that I do, but find difficult to practice. Love your enemy? That's easy to understand. Very difficult to practice. Love your neighbor? Easy to understand. Difficult to practice. Turn the other cheek? Easy to understand. Difficult to practice. Sometimes we get so caught up in the, the finer points of the faith that we don't even practice the things that we know, that we know. And that's the issue. And so when it comes to Bible study, the way that you grow in the Christian experience is to live the light that you already have. There's no sanctification aside from the truth. If you want to grow as a Christian, your response has to be yes. Now, I know an individual 
they, they, they were on like miracle grow. You ever know these people? They're like newly baptized. In like two years, he was, a, he was, a, he was an evangelist. It was, it was remarkable. Meanwhile, some Seventh-day Adventists have been in the church for like 40, 50 years. And they're cynical. And they're like, oh, one day you're going to be like us. What's the difference? I mean, one person shoots up like to glory in two years, and another person is still in pampers. Or even worse, in the NICU. What's the difference? The difference is the one individual, his response is always yes. Whenever light is shown, it's always yes. You want to stunt your growth? Say, oh, that's not a salvational issue. You know, if my wife came to me, I should say, if I went to my wife, and uh, she's like, honey, I'm really tired. Can you, like, wash the dishes? I'd be like, <clears throat> is this a divorce issue? She'd be like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Well, I said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. If it's not a divorce issue, if this is not a deal breaker, I don't want to do it. She'd be like, all right. She comes to me again. Honey, I'm really tired. Can you do some of the laundry today? I say, honey, is this a divorce issue? How long is that marriage going to last? You know, sometimes we treat God worse than that. We're like, is this a salvational issue? God has feelings too. In a relationship, you don't do things just because you have to, because it's a deal breaker. You go above and beyond. And sometimes in our relationship with God, we ask all the wrong questions. It's, it's about the enrichment of the relationship, not the minimum. Who would want to marry someone that says, what's the absolute minimum I can do in this relationship and get by? I mean, you wouldn't touch that. And yet, we go to God with a contract and say, what's the bare minimum I can do and still get in? That's ouch. That's tough. Going back to this, presuppositions are powerful. Powerful. They skew reality. And even more than that, the state of the individual, a person that is unconverted, will twist knowledge and truth to meet their own selfish gratifications and carnal desires. So let's pick it up again. Let's go in, in Luke's narrative again, and let's go to the other instance in which someone sees what no one else is able to see. And it's interesting that the book of Luke begins with a person or multiple people, for that matter, that are filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's go. Let's pick it up here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. We come to the dedication of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Do you see the evidence of the Holy Spirit here? Holy Spirit, John in utero, Holy Spirit at the conception of Jesus, Holy Spirit there with Elizabeth. Here it is again. Simeon, verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And so he came into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus 
to do for him according to the custom, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, here it is. When you study scripture, imagine the text. Ellen White says we should do this. So, in my hopefully sanctified imagination, just imagine this. This priest, I don't know how many baby dedications he's done. I've had the privilege as a pastor for a number of years of doing baby dedications. One of the most awesome things when I was, when I was single before I had kids, man, I, I didn't know how to hold these babies. And, and someone came to me, one of our senior members, and said, look, when you hold a baby, make sure you support the neck. You know, I'm holding this and baby's bobbling all over the place and so forth. And so I was like, oh, thank you, you know, rookie mistake. And so these baby dedications are, you know, sacred, sacred events. And so but, but, but this priest, according to the book Desire of Ages, indicates that, that he had the tendency to treat different families differently depending on their socioeconomic status. And so he sees these poor peasants coming in, and they can only bring the minimum sacrifice. And so he's like, yawn. Ah, I guess I got another baby dedication today. And so he holds the baby, does his little thing for the dedication. Now, I want you to recognize what's, what's taking place here. What's the data? Who's he holding? <laughs> I would have been honored to do that dedication. Can you imagine? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, what do you even say? Oh, I can't believe this infinite God of the universe, eight days old. Wow. Do you think that's a moment that you mark on the calendar? Do you think that you put that in your diary or journal? Do you think you would want to put, like, some thought and effort into what you said? I mean, how do you do that blessing? But what happens is, because this man is not filled with the Spirit... Yawn. All right. Here. Next. Can you imagine the universe watching? What's wrong with this man? You see what I'm saying? Greatest dedication in history. And he just missed it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. That's what we need to recognize. Look, do you want to see it? Do you want to see it? Ellen White says the Holy Spirit can be falling all around us and we won't even see it, some, some of us. I hope that's none of us. But do you want to see it? I mean, this is like, this is, this is the epitome of blindness. You can't see what's taking place right in front of you. So he goes, yawn, next, but someone else sees it. And this is the real dedication. Heaven's like, you know what? This brother's about to botch this dedication. We're going to send the real person, Simeon. And Simeon walks in. Can you imagine the, de- the fake dedication just in yawn? And then in that moment, Simeon walks in the temple. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He sees it. He sees beyond the peasants, the poverty, the, the uneducation, or the, these uneducated couple, and, and so forth. He sees beyond that. And he sees beyond just this, this humble-garbed, child of eight months old, eight, eight days old. He sees beyond that. And he walks in there. 
and his face is glowing and he holds up this baby and he says these words lord now you are letting your servant departing in peace depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation he sees it which you have prepared before the face of all peoples to bring revelation to the gentiles and the glory of your people Israel and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him <sighs> what a powerful moment when it comes to biblical interpretation this is the single most important thing that you can't miss Ellen White tells us that before we open this book, we should always pray. And we should pray specifically for the Holy Spirit. She says if we don't pray before we open this book, she says it determines the nature of the assistant by our side. She says if we don't pray, Satan is by our side to twist the text. And she says that we can actually be injured by studying Scripture if we don't have the helper and the assistant. We can't approach this like geometry or calculus and say, oh, I'm just going to go in there with my raw brain power and get to this. We need help. We need help. Just like it was impossible to see the miracle of the incarnation in the first century, when Mary walked in that door. It is just as impossible to see the miracle of Scripture without the Holy Spirit. We're going to take a break in here in a few moments, but I want to end with this illustration. How many of you have ever heard a testimony of someone that got up front and said, I stopped swearing, I stopped beating my wife, I stopped stealing. I stopped adultery because I studied algebra. Or biology. Or calculus. You never hear people get up and give that type of testimony. No one. And yet millions throughout the ages say that they've studied this book and their lives have been transformed. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. When this comes in, sin goes out. That's the reality. And so, as we go through this seminar, I've just illustrated you the, the most fundamental, you know, we're, we're going to get to methodology here in a minute, and we'll go through some diagramming, but I, oh, I just can't have you miss this part. It's like, look, we need to be born again. We need to be surrendered. Because this, this whole exchange is not just about information. It's about transformation. It's about the transformation of our lives. And so we need to go to the text and say, Lord, break me. Break me. I surrender myself to you, my heart, my ideas, everything. I surrender to you. And when you come to the text in a way that is humble and teachable, then God's like, look, I can speak. Because Ellen White tells us this is God's word speaking to our soul. That's the reality. And we need his help. 
So stay with us as we go to the practice of, of Bible interpretation. But I just can't, I just can't miss this part. Because if we just go to methodology without the acknowledgement now, normally I spend weeks on this, just this part here about the presuppositions. But, but there's something else that we want to come to, and that is methodology and make it as practical as possible. We'll highlight one other part here before we go to the, uh, the practice here in the next hour. But uh, I just want to open it up. We have four minutes before the break. I want to open up for any questions and clarifications about this before we take our short break, and then we'll transition to our second part of our seminar this afternoon. Any reflections, comments, questions before we, we break? Oh, it's Saturday afternoon, I can tell. All right, there we go. Yeah. Mm. Are all presuppositions bad? We need presuppositions to acquire knowledge. That's the way it works, is, is we need knowledge to acquire knowledge. That's a, that's a great question, because in reality, what needs to happen is, is this needs to take primacy. So as we come to the text with our presuppositions, we're going to find things that challenge those presuppositions. And in our study... We need to be able to let the data refine our presuppositions. Exactly, exactly. And so it refines it. Now, this is what we call the hermeneutical spiral. And it's never ending because when this impacts this, then we see more of this. And it keeps going round and round and round. Like, we've given Bible studies, I'm sure you have, and I remember giving a Bible studies to someone on the state of the dead. And their presupposition was when you die, you go directly to heaven. And we had the, we had the study, the dead know not anything. And, but but that, that idea here was challenged by the text. You can see that. And so you can see them wrestling with that experience. But once they give that up and you surrender that, then they go back to the text, then you see it everywhere. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. Now, it's easy to go after the Baptists and say, oh, they have a wrong presupposition, but what about us? What about us? We all have cultural biases and presuppositions that affect our reading of the text, and we need to be willing to say, Lord, I give it up. I give it up. Uh, and the moment that we say no and we hang on to it, that is the beginning of the anatomy of what we call deception. The way that deception is, works is no one goes around saying, I'm deceived, I'm deceived. You can be deceived right now and not even know it. But uh, deception really begins when you no longer love the truth. That's the reality. When you love your idea more than, more than the truth. Great question. All right, 149. So we'll take a 10-minute break. Come back here at 2 o'clock, and uh, we'll have our second part of the seminar. Get some fresh air out there. It's the after-lunch blues. So, <laughs> all right. So we'll come back here at 2. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and your love. Help us to surrender our ideas to Scripture. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.